Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us for a few moments as we continue with our investigation of Jesus' famous and favorite topic, the saving gospel about the kingdom of God. Do you realize that Jesus was a saving teacher? It's a mistake to think that his salvation program consists only of his death and resurrection. If that were so, what was Jesus doing for three and a half years before he died? Jesus came, he said in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, to seek and to save the lost. Now, he was doing that by preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Certainly, the death of Jesus and his resurrection are absolutely essential in the saving program that God has so graciously given us. But the preaching and teaching of Jesus are absolutely essential also. It will do us no good to believe that Jesus died for our sins if we don't also pay careful attention to his teaching and respond to his call for repentance. Repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus said. In Matthew 28, he gave a great commission. He said that the disciples, until the end of the age, were to go out and cover the far ranges of the earth and teach and preach and baptize and to relay exactly the teachings which he'd given them. It's amazing then that people would not look immediately to see how did Jesus begin his teaching program, his saving teaching program. Remember that Jesus was a rabbi. You call me rabbi, he said in John 13, verse 13, and you do well. We also would do well to recognize Jesus as our teacher, as our rabbi, not merely as dying Savior and a resurrected Savior, but a teaching Savior. One cannot simply dismiss or subtract from the work of Jesus those vital years of preaching and teaching. Jesus came, he said, in his own words in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, to seek and save the lost. And he was doing it by announcing God's message. He came to call people to repentance, and repentance meant in the Bible not vaguely giving up those things that the world considers to be wrong, although it's excellent to give up bad habits. But more than that, Jesus called upon people to repent and commit themselves to the good news about the kingdom of God. We have to read it carefully in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, where Jesus initiated his public ministry and with a programmatic summary statement there, Mark records for us the foundation of the Christian faith itself. Repent, turn around, reorientate your life and your way of thinking to a brand new horizon. And Jesus called that brand new horizon the coming kingdom of God. Repent and believe that there is going to be a coming kingdom of God, that God is going to intervene to change the affairs of mankind by a drastic and cataclysmic upheaval by which he will alter the affairs of human government forever. He's going to send his son back to do this. And he's inviting you and me through the gospel of the kingdom, the Christian gospel, to take part in that kingdom as executives and those destined to reorganize the world on a sane and sound basis. At that time, the nations will disarm. They will plead to go up to Jerusalem to learn sensible ways of conducting human affairs. They will beat their swords into plowshares, military establishments, Military training schools will be a thing of the past. We will look back on them as ridiculous, as absurd and cruel in those days. 
people will not be permitted to build tanks or to manufacture guns and to threaten the life of their fellows and innocent children. People will not be allowed to disrupt families by being divorced and disturbing the peace of the children. They will not be allowed to oppress the poor. And some of those terrible diseases which now rack the bodies of people everywhere across the world will be a thing of the past. That time is coming. The world will not continue forever as it is. There's a promise in the Bible that God is going to send back his agent, the Messiah of Israel, whom we believe to have been Jesus Christ, the Jesus of Nazareth we read about in the New Testament. God is going to send him back to this earth to inaugurate the kingdom of God on the earth. Blessed are the meek, Jesus said of his followers. They are going to inherit the earth. And that promise of the earth or the land goes back to the great covenanted promise, the oath-bound promise made between God and Abraham in Genesis 12, 13, 15, and 17, and so on. If you'd like to have an article on that foundational promise made to Abraham, the foundation of the Christian faith, request from us the article entitled Genesis and the Covenant Made with Abraham, and also an article on the restoration of Israel. We've been pointing out that Jesus was a Jew, and his teaching is thoroughly Jewish, embedded and rooted in the Hebrew Bible, what we rather unfortunately call, and really mistakenly call, the Old Testament. You see, the Old Testament is not passé or finished. That 77% of our Bible is a vibrant, living word of God, as God unfolds his great drama, as yet unfinished. We're waiting for the revival, the resurrection the coming back to life of all the faithful who have died, precisely so that they may enjoy the benefits of their reward, which is a place of authority and administration in the kingdom of God with Jesus when he returns to this earth. That's the substance of the Christian gospel. There's nothing in Scripture about promises of disappearing as a disembodied soul to heaven. That's a piece of mythology that invaded the faith in post-biblical times. Jesus never said, if you want to go to heaven, do so and so. He always said, if you want to inherit the earth or the kingdom or to have the life of the age to come, somewhat badly translated in our versions as everlasting life. Everlasting life is indeed life which will last forever. But the Greek expression which goes back to the Hebrew Bible is much more precise. It means the life of the age to come, and it's a synonym for the future kingdom of God. We're being invited by the gospel to have that life of the age to come. And that life can be tasted in advance of the future kingdom by receiving the Spirit of God now. And the Spirit of God is to be acquired by being born again, by repenting and believing in the word and words of Jesus. Acts 8.12 sums up the New Testament pattern for evangelism. When they believe Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, both men and women alike. That's a sort of early creed, and it shows the model of evangelism in biblical times, a model, I should say, which we would do well to repeat and to copy and take as our standard today because it reflects the method and the message of Jesus and the apostles themselves. Well, you may say, doesn't John in his gospel say that God so loved the world that he gave his unique Son so that all who believe in him would not perish, but have the life of the age to come? Well, certainly he did. 
But people have been conditioned to think of that verse as meaning that God sent his Son only to die and to be resurrected. But that's not what the text says. God gave his Son. He appointed his Son. The word give in the Hebrew Bible often means to appoint. God sent his Son. He appointed his Son. He gave his Son. He didn't just give him up to die. Oh, that, that was part of his program. But God commissioned his Son. And to do what, we may ask? Well, Jesus answered that question exactly for us. In Luke 4, verse 43, Jesus said, I came to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's the reason why God sent me. God sent his Son to save the world. God sent his Son to preach the kingdom of God so that we might believe in that great salvation plan about the kingdom and thus gain salvation. Salvation, you see, cannot and must not be divorced from the word and the words and the gospel as it fell from the lips of Jesus himself. The gospel that we need to concentrate on as Christians is the gospel according to Jesus Christ. Many people seem to have the mistaken idea that Paul invented the gospel somehow. Nothing could be further from the biblical truth. There's only one gospel in the New Testament, and John the Baptist and Jesus are the ones who inaugurated that gospel. We read this clearly in Hebrews chapter 2. And verse 3, we learn in that verse, Hebrews 2, verse 3, that the gospel began to be preached by Jesus. Indeed, in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, we learn that God spoke in the past to the prophets in various ways in the times of the Hebrew Bible, but has in these last times, or at the end of those times, spoken to us in a son. Did you notice that God has spoken to us? in a son. The text, you note carefully, does not just say that God gave his son to die and to be raised. God sent his son to teach us, to speak to us. In fact, Paul in 1 Timothy 6 verse 3 tells us in absolutely clear terms that the sound words are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the health-giving words which we must cling to for salvation. He who abides in my word, Jesus says. That's the person who has his prayers answered. You'll find that in John 15, verse 7. If you abide in my words, my teachings, my gospel, then you will ask what you will, and it will be done for you. The words of Jesus are the most precious words ever uttered because they convey to us and transmit to us the very mind of God, the one God of Israel who is the Father of Jesus Christ. Jesus, as we know, is the Messiah, the Son of God, uniquely conceived in the womb of Mary. It was because of that wonderful miracle in the womb of Mary that Jesus is entitled to be called the Son of God. Luke 1, verse 35. Jesus, as the agent of God, bears the message of God, which is the gospel about the kingdom. And that's the saving message, the saving seed, which must take root in the heart of the believer. Jesus said exactly that in his famous parable of the different kinds of soils. In other words, the different types of people and the different ways in which they react or respond to the gospel. Some react with excitement and enthusiasm. Others are apathetic and indifferent. Their hearts are stony. Nothing that could be said to them would get through that thick shell of resistance which they've erected against the gospel, that barricade 
that steel barricade that they've mounted against the truth of the words of Jesus, and the words of Jesus are summarized throughout the Bible, particularly the New Testament, and especially the New Testament, they're summarized under the term gospel of the kingdom of God. In Matthew 13, verse 19, Jesus spoke of the seed which must take root in the heart of the believer in order to confer upon him the germ of immortality, the spark of life which will eventually result in immortality and living forever. Is there one of us that would turn down the offer of immortality? I think not. Jesus was in the business of conferring immortality on people. He pleaded with them to accept his message, his way of thinking, and his lifestyle. Matthew 13:19 speaks of the word of the kingdom, that's to say the gospel of the kingdom, which must take root in our hearts so that the salvation process may begin. And note, of course, that in the Bible, the salvation process is indeed a process. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's not true to say that once we're saved, we're always saved. We have to be saved and go on being saved, and we must survive to the end. Now, the implication and the dominant hope in the New Testament is that we will indeed succeed, that we will persist to the end. But you don't win a race when the starting gun goes off. You win the race as you arrive at the final tape, and you gain the gold medal as a winner, not as one who begins the race. Salvation is mainly thought of in the New Testament as something to be gained in the future. We invite you to request from us an article entitled The Ifs of Christianity, Please use the telephone number or address to be given at the end of this program. Meanwhile, join us again for our ongoing discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.